Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Guy Trifkovich, who talks about prisoner exchange and warfare in Yugoslavia in World War II. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Guy Trifkovich, author of Parlaying with the Devil, Prisoner Exchange in Yugoslavia, 1941-1945, to to be published by the University Press of Kentucky, June 23rd, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, thank you, Chris, for having me. So first, how did you get into studying and writing on this very uh, specific subject? Well, actually, uh, I, like all historians, had a pop phase. I used to call it the pop phase. <laughs> so I liked reading about uh, Rommel, Africa Corps, big tank clashes, Eastern Front, whatever. But then by 2005, when I studying, when I started studying history, I became interested in World War II in Yugoslavia. I guess you have to be like a, a bit mature to mature as a historian mm-hmm. uh, to tackle the topic of this complexity. Mm-hmm. And as you, I don't know if you know, but it's, it's, really, a, it's really a complex, complex topic mm-hmm. with like, you had like 12, at least 12 factions and there was all kinds of politics and uh, internal, external and everything. But the basic premise, like I, I, which I learned in school because I was born in 1981. So I remember the socialist times. And there was this thing about the history of World War II. The basic thing is, the basic point is that the communists legitimized their rule uh, through the World War II narrative, mm-hmm. a special World War II narrative, uh, in which they were basically uh, do-or-die, uncompromising fighters against uh, against the Axis and against fascism. Mm-hmm. And topics such as prisoner exchange and political talks were, I wouldn't say taboo, but they were discouraged. Because why? Because they were not beneficial uh, for the communists for this idealized image, uh, how they presented themselves. Mm-hmm. So they were usually either passed over in silence or mentioned, but without going into details, because any comprehensive approach would lead to, uh, let's call them, unpleasant truths. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why the research was segmented. For instance, there was an article in prison exchange with Italians uh, back in 1967. And then there was another article on prison exchange with the Germans in 1977. And there was this uh, otherwise really great book about the so-called March negotiations from 1943, which was published only in 1985. So the research was really fragmented. And this this caught my eye because, you know, the, the standard narrative was that they were killing the Germans whenever they, whenever they met them, and the Germans did the same to them, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you learn that they were actually capable of sitting down on a table and uh, negotiating negotiating uh, things that could be of mutual interest. Mm-hmm. And I guess that I was fascinated with the triumph of practicality over brutality. Mm-hmm. So how do you... let's, let's, let's call it so. Okay. 
so let's talk about uh, the book itself. Um, how okay. do you break it down chronologically, or is it thematic? How do you approach uh, the subject? Well, I use I use uh, both approaches. Like the book is uh, divided in altogether five chapters. Uh, the first one deals with with Serbia. Why with Serbia? Um, because uh, here as I would dare say no other things pertaining to this part of Europe. Uh, there is this, there is balkanization. Mm-hmm. That means that the, that everything is heavily fragmentized with different sets of rules and everything applying to different parts. And Serbia was special in this, in this respect because unlike the remainder of the country, there were no, there were no prisoner exchanges past 1941. And why was that? It was because Germans were especially sensitive about Serbia. They considered it um, a hotbed of insurgency and would really, really consider that uh, anything but brute force uh, would be considered as an act of weakness. Mm. So they didn't even bother offering prisoner exchanges or talking with the partisans or whatever. And that would last until, until, until the end of the war. Like there were no contacts there. Mm-hmm. In contrast, uh, across the across the border in what was then the puppet state of Croatia, uh, it was totally different. Uh, the Germans were were weak. They had a weak contingent because this was supposed to be a friendly country, and they were in fact uh, they, they were forced to negotiate through this weakness, mm-hmm. and this is what led to uh, the political contacts. Uh, between the partisan supreme headquarters and the uh, uh, German commanders and uh, ambassador in in Zagreb, in what was capital of uh, puppet state of Croatia, and that's that's the the first round of these contacts, which took place 1942, is the subject of the second chapter. Let me interrupt you for one moment, just for um, just to give the listener some fundamental knowledge. Uh, can you talk yeah. about? In Yugoslavia through this period, how much uh, major fighting occurred and how much was simply a German occupation, you know, like police activity, that sort of thing? Uh, okay. There is a one German document, I believe it's August 41, mm-hmm. in which the commander, the Wehrmacht commander in, in, in the Balkans, I'm not sure if he's for the whole of the Balkans or just Serbia, uh, in which he states, uh, like, okay, there is like communist insurgency, but we don't need army reinforcements because if the army takes the field and if it takes casualties, that's going to be a major propaganda coup for the, for the insurgents. So we'll just use what police and uh, collaborationist forces we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a month later, they are already uh, pleading for reinforcements from Greece, from France, from uh, even from the USSR. So it escalated rather quickly into a major, when I say major, I don't wish to compare it, of course, with the Eastern Front or whatever, but it was, it was highly unpleasant for the Germans. Mm-hmm. And by, let's say, mid-November, in addition to three divisions they already had in Serbia, which were rather weak, uh, they received another one from uh, Ukraine and one more from France. So it was though those were those were major operations going. There were major operations going on at the time. Mm-hmm. 
So it was, and I'm, here I'm talking just about Serbia. Uh, the, the the situation in, in Croatia and in Bosnia was, was, and in Slovenia was very similar. In Montenegro, for instance, you had like 4,000 Italians captured by the end of July by the insurgents. So it was really in flames. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So uh, let, let's step back then to, to what you were discussing um, area by area. We, I, I came to the third, to the third chapter, mm-hmm. which, uh, which deals with uh, the what was probably the most controversial episode of the war, and these were the March negotiations, so-called of March 1943. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's so controversial about them? Uh, several, several issues. Uh, in very, in very broad strokes, uh, Tito and the bulk of his army were surrounded in a very a very small patch of land south of Sarajevo in, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And they were practically facing destruction because they were surrounded on all sides. And out of uh, desperation, uh, Tito decided to build on the first round of negotiations, which happened in 1942, and offer Germans a truce, an exchange of prisoners. In exchange... He offered to withdraw to a neutral territory somewhere in the east, uh, so outside of the German zone of occupation, not to attack the Germans. And his envoys stated that the, that they would oppose the British landing if it happened. Hmm. And now the, for the past, for the past, what is it? It's, it's still very controversial. For the past 70 years, uh, the people are still debating whether these um, whether these statements, statements and offers were they real? Uh, would they really have fought the British? Um, were these negotiations an act of collaboration, uh, similar to agreements the the Serbian royalists had with the Germans? Because partisans accused them of of collaborating with the Germans, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden it it appears that the partisans are doing the same thing. Hmm. So it's 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 very it's it's a very controversial topic and very complex one. I felt it needed a, a chapter of its own, although it covers only uh, the time frame between January and April 1943. I'm speaking with Guy Trifkovich, author of Parlaying with the Devil. You can find more information on his work at ResearchGate and Academia.edu by searching for his name. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my book recommendation newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at Warscholar or on YouTube at Warscholar1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Warscholar, or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. And the other two chapters? 
Yeah, I had the two chapters. So there's a, there's the fourth chapter actually, which is the centerpiece of the of the of the whole book, uh, and it's about uh, what was called the neutral zone at Pisarovina. Pisarovina is the name of a small village south of Zagreb, and this village was uh, agreed to by both Germans and the partisans to be a neutral zone whose sole purpose was to facilitate the exchange of prisoners. Hmm. So it was probably the only such spot in Europe. Hmm. Uh, they didn't sign this, this agreement, but they made a, it was a gentleman's agreement that they would, that it would be honored and it was honored. So that's, that's the craziest thing about, about it. Hmm. And, uh, and the prisoners, prisoners com- continue to be exchanged there until late April, 1945, until the very last weeks of the war. Was the German um, command aware of this all the way to the top, all the way to Hitler, or was there any any part of it was it kept hidden from higher ups for whatever reason? Uh, well, some of it, some of it was hidden, uh, like day to day, day to day business was. I don't know if it was hidden or they just uh, didn't consider it necessary to include it in in daily reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, but major things like March negotiations, they went all up to, all up to Hitler. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and he was famous. He was famous for cutting them short uh, by saying that you don't negotiate with rebels, with you you shoot them. Mm-hmm. And that was like uh, that encapsulates this one sentence encapsulates the entire uh, German foreign policy in Second World War. Mm-hmm. I believe that Professor Klaus Schmieder tell that. Like when, whenever there was a a chance of achieving anything diplomatically, Hitler would cut it short. Mm-hmm. Was was there any um, with the prisoner on the Yugoslav side? Was there any mm-hmm. coordination between the factions as far as which prisoners were exchanged, or did each faction was each faction dealt with individually? Uh, well, if you if you refer when you refer to Yugoslav factions, I take it you refer to. Chetniks and the partisans, so the the, the two uh, competing guerrilla movements. Mm-hmm. One was communist-led, the other was was royalist, but they were at, at odds with each other. They were like um, they were in, in war since November 1941 and fought each other. Some say uh, more viciously than they did uh, than they did the Germans. That was in in each case. So definitely true for the Chetniks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the partisans, actually, all the major uh, questions about the prisoner exchange were decided on the top by uh, partisan leader Tito and uh, and a small group of officers around him. Uh, but there were differences. Uh, there was there were regional differences in how the partisans in Slovenia, for instance, approached this this problem compared to the partisans in Macedonia. Uh, but there was this always uh, this uh, the, the the guideline was that uh, utilize prisoners if you can like don't shoot them if you if you can if you can get some of our guys for them. Mm. But how this was achieved and whether an, an exchange would be offered here we again touch upon the balkanization because every every commander practically. Uh, had the last word in the exchange proceedings. Like one brigade commander would be happy to go 
to go along with it. Uh, the guy who came who came behind him wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And it's really it's 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 really fragmented, and each case is a is a is a separate story, basically. Mm-hmm. Although there were, as I said, some guidelines which were basically basically obeyed by the partisans throughout the country, from from 1943 onwards. Let's say. Were the Germans only taking fighters as prisoners, or did they also take civilians as prisoners who they later exchanged? Well, they were taking everything who everyone who was suspicious of of being a partisan supporter or an active partisan or an underground worker, and of course the prisons and concentration camps were overflowing by these people. Uh, the problem was, uh, at least for the partisans, that they had to choose from this multitude, and they had to choose very carefully. They would, for instance, because the number of the number of captured Germans was never as high as the number of people suspected of harboring partisan uh, sympathies. Mm-hmm. So they had to uh, choose very carefully. And they would, for the most part, choose like uh, veteran fighters or party members. And But there was, of course, this, this, this personal, personal touch, you know. Uh, some high-ranking functionaries uh, saved their relatives. And, well, the same was... Same was true for the Germans, of course. There were like interventions flowing in uh, from all sides hmm. to the people who were responsible for the day-to-day functioning of the of the exchange cartel. Mm-hmm. Were, were there any instances where one side gave the other a list of names, and maybe some of those names were were shot or or dealt with harshly because they knew that they were important to the other side? Yes, that 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 occurred uh, that occurred rather rather often, but um, it was not uh, it was not usually done by uh, by the Germans if we take the Axis side, but by their underlings, so the Croatian the Croatian fascists, uh, like the moment they because they were running the running the camps and uh, in which uh, these communist suspects were incar- incarcerated by the police. And when the Germans, uh, Germans would often come and say, okay, here we have a re- release form for, for these guys. And almost always the Ustashada, the, well, the Croatian fascists would say, oh, we don't need, oh, we don't know these guys. They're not in, they're not in our hands. And in fact, they were, but they weren't, they weren't ready to part with these captives so that the Germans could de- get their guys out. Mm. Uh, Ustasha wanted their guys out also, but there was a problem because there was really, if I can call it a blood feud between uh, the Ustasha, i.e. creation fascists, and the partisans uh, who were like, there was really a war of extermination between the two. And it was very, very uh, hard to find uh, suitable, enough suitable prisoners in order to exchange them, in their case. So yes, they would often say the people, um, the people who the Germans requested were not there because if the partisans are requesting them, it means that they're important, mm-hmm. and we ain't gonna give them. What? So what you mentioned? There's a fifth chapter. Also, um, have you touched on that one as well? Uh, no. So the fifth chapter is about the, these these local affairs, which were which were negotiated between uh, the forces in the field by the, by, by the army units on, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
um, but it's of course this uh, the, the the frequency of these uh, these affairs were is so was directly connected to the issue of the of the main uh, negotiations which were led in Zagreb about this uh, exchange cartel in Pisarovina. So you have a spike in local prisoner exchanges in 1944 and 1945. So as soon as this cartel was agreed agreed upon, the word went out: save your prisoners, either exchange them yourselves or send them to us, and we'll exchange them for you. Mm. And that's what—that's basically what the fifth chapter is about, and it covers uh, the whole, so the entire country. And there are some well different different uh, episodes from different, like from Slovenia, from Macedonia, Bosnia. Everything is covered there. Mm-hmm. A question I had forgot to ask previously: Were there any non-German fighters held by the partisans, and not Yugoslav fighters? but rather um, German allies, you know, like Italians or anyone else from other countries that were held and were per- perhaps exchanged? Uh, yes, uh, the the exchange, uh, the prisoner exchange that the partisans had the, with the Germans, uh, they had a similar thing, although without the cartel that's, and without the neutral zone. It wasn't that formalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had it with practically every every uh, opposing side in the country. So they were swapping prisoners with Italians already from 1941, and they were doing the same with the uh, regular regular armed forces of the independent state of Croatia, mm-hmm. and they were swapping prisoners with the Chetniks and basically with with everyone because that was the only way. You could protect uh, your people who fell into captivity. Mm-hmm. There was no other way. There was no international law. So this was the only the only way to save them was to uh, appeal to your enemy's self interest. So again, I think you kind of mentioned implied some of it already. I don't think you said directly, but but why did this occur in this area of operations and not other parts of Europe? Um, it, it did occur in other parts of Europe um, because, as I said, that was the that was the only way uh, uh, to protect your to protect your fighters if you are an irregular irregular army. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, so. It would be it beneficial to give a few examples from American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the same the same principle applied to the prisoner of war issue between the Continental Army and the British Army during the during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 British uh, didn't want to didn't recognize uh, the Americans as as lawful belligerents. They were rebels, mm-hmm. uh, and the the Americans uh, wanted to achieve this recognition through prisoner exchange. And the same thing happened during the Civil War, uh, the, where the Southern states and the and the Union they exchanged prisoners right up until 1863, I believe, when the Union canceled the the cartel. So basically, whenever there is a rebel, uh, there there is a there there is prisoner exchange. Uh, they were registered in Greece. They were registered uh, in France. They were registered in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what made them uh, so massive uh, in Yugoslavia, I believe, 
uh, is the, is because the operations were so much more intensive there than than in the other parts of occupied Europe. Mm-hmm. There are like lists with with names of Germans uh, who 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 were gone missing, uh, which are like I don't I believe seven hundred names in one list or something like that, mm-hmm. and that was like only one list from uh, mid nineteen forty four I believe. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really messy, and it, it was getting even more messy as the time progressed. As the partisans grew, as they got more guns, the operations so grew bigger, and uh, the number of prisoners grew with it. Hmm. Considering you said before that Hitler said all rebels should be shot, how do you know how he was convinced to go ahead with this uh, exchange program? Uh, I believe that he was uh, convinced uh, by the by the practical arguments. Uh, they told him, uh, "Prisoner, we we need these contacts with the bandits, as they call them, mm-hmm. uh, in order to gain intelligence, in order to find out about about find out more about their plans through these informal conversations, which were an integral part of the negotiations." Mm-hmm. And with the fact that that the that the Germans were getting their men back mm. in this way, because Balkans wasn't wasn't quite high on the priority list of the German high command, mm-hmm. uh, and whatever they could save, well, better it, it was better for the army in the Balkans there, mm. because that would that would mean less men to ask Berlin for. Oh. So these were these practical practical considerations, and. Basically, uh, basically Hitler, Hitler would grumble a bit, but would usually go with the with what the with what the commanders with what the commanders suggested. Mm-hmm. So, thinking about the people that uh, Germany that Germany wanted in concentration camps, you know, Jewish people, gypsies, mm-hmm. um, okay. other you know, quote undesirables undesir- de- in their eyes. Were any of those people involved in any prisoner exchanges in uh, Yugoslavia that you know of? I, I can't remember any any particular case. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember seeing. No, I, I don't even think that was that was that was like uh, thematized at all. Like mm-hmm. um, they would be, for instance, for instance, the partisans would um, ask. They're asked the people back uh, based on their service record, on their rank. If any Jews were among them, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but I, I don't quote me. Don't quote me on that. Okay. Were Were there any prisoners exchanged that you were pretty surprised that you saw were exchange agreed to be exchanged and exchanged? That's a good question. But basically, the well, the rule was you can, we can get anyone out, just name the the right price, you know. So there were like people uh, like Ustasha, Ustasha police policemen, like notorious policemen, uh, who would probably be shot um, day maybe days after capture. Mm-hmm. But who were released? But they were released in exchange for, let's say, sixteen partisans, or seventeen, or twenty partisans. Mm-hmm. So if you could, like one one American officer described the partisans, uh, saying uh, that Tito and and the others are are horse traders. So you just had to you just had to haggle, 
and basically you can agree anything. They were like uh, like born traders. Mm-hmm. So they were like chiefs of. There was actually one one chief of uh, Nazi security service in a regional center in, in Bosnia. He was he was exchanged, for instance, for I don't know, I I believe twenty or something people. Mm-hmm. But there are also there were also people like who uh, highly decorated officers like uh, Luftwaffe ace who downed one hundred and eighty eight Allied airplanes, who fell over head, head who was shot down over Herzegovina mm-hmm. in December nineteen forty three. And who was just executed by the local partisans mm. without without waiting, without asking the higher ups what what they should do with this, because pilots were very valuable. They, they, were, they were known as very valuable hostages. The Germans would always ask for them first, mm. but they simply shot him. Mm. Like, and there were there were there were no rules. Basically, there were no surprises. Right. Either either for high ranking Nazi officials or veterans, anything anything could happen. So near the end of the war, did um did you see the Germans um trying to exchange much more quickly as they pulled out, or how did how did things change as the war was ending with this whole um setup? You are you are quite right. Um, the prisoners prisoner exchanges in 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 uh, 1945 uh, exchanged i believe more often than in the preceding years i mean per month but the problem is well so the problem was now for instance partisans by by this time uh, had a large liberated territories like half of the country stood permanently uh, so it was permanently theirs and they had prisoner war camps and and what's very important they were negotiating from the position of strength mm-hmm. so for instance okay prisoner exchange was still uh it was still useful but by now for instance they would sometimes be in habit of shooting the officers mm-hmm. whom they captured mm-hmm. who could have been exchanged like you could get you could get several ordinary fighters or underground workers for for a single officer, but uh, by the end of the war, uh, they came to care less and less. Mm-hmm. And the Germans were, of course, they were eager to get as many of their people as they could. They even proposed, uh, they even proposed to uh, release to exchange like uh, two thousand. Uh, I believe uh, soldiers of the former Yugoslav army, which went into captivity in April 1941, mm-hmm. to exchange 2,000 of them for a similar number of their own soldiers, whom they thought were uh, wounded in and in partisan captivity. Mm-hmm. So they were, and that that offer was made, I believe, in April 1945. I'm speaking with Guy Trifkovich, author of Parlaying with the Devil. You can find more information on his work at ResearchGate and academia.edu by searching for his name. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my book recommendation newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at Warscholar or on YouTube at at War Scholar 1945. You can contact me directly 
on Twitter at WarScholar or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez WarScholar. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So, two questions here. When, when the Germans finally left, did they, was there any large-scale execution of prisoners? I'll, I'll, that's the first question I'll ask. Well, that that again depends on the on the time frame and on the on the location. Okay. Uh, in Serbia, uh, as I mentioned, where no prisoners were exchanged and there where the uh, levels of violence uh, remained high throughout the war, uh, shootings in uh, in concentration camps where the captive members of the People's Liberation Movement were held, uh, they continued. Uh, until days before uh, Belgrade was liberated, for instance. The, the, these concentration camps were located in Belgrade. And they were shooting prisoners, like, un- until the very end. There is this, uh, there was this uh, fairly large exchange in Skopje, the capital of Macedonia, uh, northern Macedonia today, uh, where Macedonian prisoners exchanged, like, hundreds of their people for 100 partisans on the outskirts of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, several days after that, uh, the Germans withdrew from the from the city and executed the remaining captives. Mm. I'm I don't think that they executed any captives when they were withdrawing from Zagreb in early May 1945, mm-hmm. because they were uh, they knew they knew how the war would end basically, or they were. Uh, they were aware of the possibility that they might be taken captive by the Yugoslavs. Mm-hmm. And so they decided to spare Zagreb of demolitions. And I believe that they, that they didn't touch them, what, what remaining prisoners they had in their hands. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is at the end of the war, or what, let's say when it ended in Yugoslavia when the Germans left, uh, were there many German POWs or Axis POWs in Yugoslavia, and what ended up happening to them? Do you know? Yeah, according to the official uh, Yugoslav statistic, uh, the Yugoslavs captured, and I'm not sure if that uh, that refers, that probably refers to the whole period from, let's say, 20th March to uh, 15th of May. That it captured about two hundred and two hundred and twenty or two hundred thirty thousand uh, uh, thousand members of the German of the German armed forces. Mm-hmm. Mind you, this this number includes like forty thousand Italians mm-hmm. who were attached to German formations in one capacity or the other, and it also includes uh, a lot of people who were born in Romania or Hungary or Poland, whom the Nazis uh, decided to make Germans uh, when they ran out of manpower. Mm, And they were basically captured as German soldiers in German uniforms. But how Germans were they, that's, you know, that's debatable. Mm -hmm. In any case, they were at least, I believe, about 90,000 
100,000 Germans and maybe 20, 30,000 Austrians captured in, in Yugoslavia in the closing days of the war. And uh, that is basically an under-researched topic uh, because no one in the, in, in the former Yugoslavia actually has much interest in it. It, it, it doesn't, you, you can't use that in uh, daily politics. And that's a defining factor, I'm afraid, in uh, defining historical research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no one, no one cares about what, what happened to Germans. Basically, we have a, what we have are German eyewitness accounts, uh, which were full of dreadful stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly dreadful things did happen. Uh, but we have to, of course, remember that these uh, these statements were given uh, during the Cold War and by the people who were pretty bitter uh, about how the war ended. Mm. And uh, uh, and there are very few Yugoslav documents which surfaced uh, about about what happened uh, about what happened in in the in the in the prisoner of war camps. Uh, I believe that the German Red Cross mentioned something about 85,000 uh, repatriated. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure which were repatriated until 90, 1949, mm-hmm. uh, whereby I'm not sure that this number includes Austrians. So anyway, about 85,000 and whatever Austrians were were repatriated, repatriated to. There were... There were some processes organized, uh, but it was there was mostly uh, so against officers, and there was a special uh, prisoner war camp for war criminals, where they were held uh, until they could be tried. But there was a group of about, I believe, a uh, thousand or fifteen hundred, fifteen hundred men, and the last remaining were released, I believe, in 1952 already. Even like. Uh, People who who were sentenced to uh, long prison uh, prison sentences by the Yugoslavs and the Yugoslav military tribunals, uh, they 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 were like they were pretty harsh. Hmm. Uh, but even them, like who were who were sentenced to 20, 30 years, they were released in 1952. And I believe that has that has to do with the isolated position of Yugoslavia hmm. uh, back then. You know, there was this split with Stalin. And Yugoslavia was like alone between east and west, and they were probably they were probably uh, doing what they could to appease the West in some in some way, mm-hmm. and that's by releasing these these remaining prisoners. That's actually the question I was going to ask because um, I, okay. I wondered if at that point Yugoslavia was under the influence of the communist bloc. And then do they release prisoners to East Germany or West Germany? You know, there's that whole, whole thing. Uh, that's, the, that's the point which, I, which I've forgotten uh, a while ago. I, I mentioned the 85,000 85, uh, Germans who were repatriated. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that was, uh, there was a number of, of those who were repatriated to West Germany or to East Germany as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. So the number could be higher, but that's outside of the scope of your book. So um. yes, yes, uh, but uh, as you as you as you asked whether Yugoslavia was uh, under communist influence, yeah, well, yes, but it was under the influence of the of the local communists of the Yugoslav communists mm-hmm. who were at that time at loggerheads with the Soviets. 
there was like a semi semi war situation on the borders mm. because they split in 1948 so as i said the release of german prisoners it kind of it, it follows the 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 european pattern you know by beginning of 50s no one cared basically what these guys did during the war mm-hmm. yeah just forgot and i find it yeah and i find it and i and i find it fascinating that the that the Yugoslav communists uh, thought as well, uh, and that's because that's that's another example of their of their famous practicality when they would, you know, like um, disregard ideology for a moment if any immediate gain could be made. Mm-hmm. So let me turn towards uh, how you did your research. Um, what sort of archives did you use? What you know? How did you get your information? So I first went through. I believe literally hundreds, hundreds of books, like uh, unit monographs, unit histories, um, memoir literature, from all sides. So from Yugoslav and German alike, of course, Yugoslav is more uh, voluminous. Then I went through um, documents of all sides involved. In the partisan case, there's this very handy, very handy uh, thing uh, called collection of documents and data on the People's Liberation War of Yugoslavia. That was like additional documents uh, similar to the official papers, Civil War. In, uh, and from 1949 to 1989, there were 170 books published, I believe. And each of them on average is at least six, 700 pages of documents. Uh, so I went through those. That was, that was handy because you, I did visit the, the, the main, I'll call it partisan archive in Belgrade. Uh, but this was, this is very useful to have these 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 books, and uh, for the German documents, I went through the uh, microfilmed now they are digitized documents uh, of uh, German army units which are stored at the U.S. National Archives, hmm. and there is there is an interesting thing about it, uh, especially especially about the Germans, but to a fair extent also for the Yugoslavs that. There is uh, there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of self censorship regarding these the, these things, like uh, Germans would, for instance, when and if these diaries are available, because after mid nineteen forty four we have only the highest level like army group, and there the uh, the the issues discussed there have little to do with prisoner exchange. They have to do with strategy and operations and whatever. But on the lower levels, like regiments and battalions and divisions, you could sometimes you sometimes encounter encounter a sentence like uh, one soldier returned from bandit uh, from bandit captivity, hmm. and then you take a Yugoslav book like dealing with the same time frame and the same location, hmm. and you find that that there was an exchange there, maybe not the same date, usually not the same date, but you you find a clue. Mm-hmm. And there's literally, I, I, I ran into several of these, several of, of such instances. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 kind of tricky, but it uh, it's it also it's more fun. It's a challenge mm-hmm. to reconstruct all these events 
uh, and not having all the information uh, you need, you know, like stored in 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 five, ten, twelve folders. Uh, so you so you just go through them and pick whatever you pick whatever you need. Regarding the archives, there is one very interesting, also one very interesting thing. Uh, the, the Croatian state archives um, have uh, this collection of documents they um, inherited from the Yugoslav secret police. And uh, luckily for me, there is like a whole there is a whole collection of uh, documents, uh, actually uh, interrogations of uh, German personnel who were at Zagreb at that time. And these are like old-fashioned, like an old-fashioned collage. You have a personal file on Tito, for instance, and in that file you have statements of like 20 people uh, who had anything to do with Tito. Hmm. And they're literally cut uh, cut and, and pasted and glued together. And there is, a, in, so in absence of, of official documents, because official documents from that from that time and from this special German commando for prisoner exchange did not survive mm. and in there in their absence this was this was truly uh, truly a treasure treasure trove mm-hmm. because you find all all, all sorts of informations uh, they had on these on, on, on various people and uh, as I said they're, they're they're compiled from usually from post-war interrogations of the Germans who were captured mm. Okay. So you have so you have you have even personal informations like who who dabbled in in black markets who like bought sold from the partisans and then sold it in Zagreb and made money yeah. and there were of course there were of course such things happening too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Well, you know when you when you're into something when you when you love the topic, uh, everything is everything is enjoyable uh, but uh, I would I would um, um, especially mention the this fourth chapter the the neutral zone at Pisarovina uh, that that is as I said the centerpiece of the work uh, because it was it it's really uh, it, it didn't get much attention even not even in, uh, well of course not even in Yugoslavia and it you could really read very little about it and and of course then i was i was i was happy to find these documents in zagreb which allowed me to reconstruct it i believe satisfactorily mm-hmm. that was that was like great i went all through the german documents from from well, from uh, from national archives and records administration everything and there was all these sentence here sentence there uh, and then I found this, found this great, great, great collection, and could use it, of course. Were you able to visit the site or any sites associated with these exchanges? Uh, to, to tell you the truth, I, 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 I didn't even try. Mm-hmm. I didn't even try. I was, I was short and mo- mostly short on time, mm-hmm. and I, I did. Add, I did send a letter uh, to the. To the to the municipal municipal office in this in this village, uh, inquiring about uh, about details, uh, but never never received an answer. So, okay. But it was basically there was basically there there are no no monuments there. There are uh, there are just patches of land 
where uh, both sides will bring their captives and load it onto trucks and simply exchange them and then go about their business. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious if now, you know, it's a situation where now wherever it happened is there's a supermarket there now or something and people have no idea, you know. Well, well, that I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe you're right about this, this, this village as well. But I, as I said, I received no answer. So, they, they, you're probably right. I would, <laughs> I would also guess that they, they, they never heard about this, about this, these, these things happening in their, in their backyard, so to say. Mm-hmm. What did you find that was most surprising when you researched this book? And what I find most surprising. Hmm, well, basically, I was I was surprised at the at the at the as I mentioned it already about the triumph of practicality mm-hmm. over brutality, like uh, that these that these uh, mortal foes, really mortal foes, who were slaughtering each other uh, mercilessly in the field of battle, uh, were actually able. Uh, to restrain themselves mm-hmm. and to do uh, basically what was what was the right right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Although, as I said as I said earlier, that had a little to do with humanitarian humanitarianism, but more with self interest, or should we call it uh, uh, narcissist humanitarianism? They were concerned only for the well being of their own people, of course. Mm-hmm. And not for the well-being uh, of prisoners or in general, and that that that's that that was really that was really uh, fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty surprised that this went on, especially in an area that was so involved so much brutality. But um, there it is. Yeah, they were like, uh, they, as I said, they had this neutral zone. They said like, okay, five kilometers from here. Uh, a five kilometer radius from the center of the village no one may, may maintain troops no one may uh, no side may conduct movements uh, no attacks may be organized from there and there were of course incidents happening uh, but basically both sides were very scrupulous about it mm-hmm. and like you know you have like uh, uh, legendary Yugoslav partisans, and then on the other side you had these brutal occupiers, you know, these these, well, let's call them stereotypes. And then all of a sudden, oh, they say, okay, yeah, okay, we have a gentleman's agreement. They didn't sign anything. That's the that's the big gap I couldn't fill. They were supposed to sign this agreement, establishing this neutral zone. Mm-hmm. So it was supposed to be like really, really formal, but it was never signed, and I simply couldn't uh, find out why. That was I don't. There, there were simply not enough documents available, and no one mentioned it. Both sides mentioned it like independent. You can you can find it in in uh, independent sources uh, that that it wasn't signed. So it probably wasn't, but. Why wasn't it signed? I don't know. That's like a gap, and I and I mentioned that also in the book, um, basically saying I'm basically saying I'm sorry. Not to ask too light a question, but um, do you have any evidence that in this neutral area, you know, maybe the two sides would get together and sit down and have beers and have cordial conversations, or was it just completely antagonistic when they got together? There was uh, that. That is another another 
interesting aspects, or maybe the part of the of the aspect we mentioned we mentioned earlier this this human uh, human aspect of things. They were the, the the people who were doing the negotiations because both sides had a uh, had a fairly permanent representatives for prisoner exchange. Hmm. So these people uh, met I don't know maybe once twice a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they they be they began to behave as as work colleagues basically like any other people who were there maybe not doing the business uh, maybe that that was not to their liking maybe wasn't pleasant but they had to do it and with time and through these through these uh, frequent contacts they actually established some of them even established what might be termed as friendly relations. Mm-hmm. Although they were, as I said, they were like they were mortal foes. Mm-hmm. And yes, they were like, for instance, there is one, uh, there is one example which is very dear to me. When a, when a chief partisan negotiator who was, this guy was a communist since early 20s. So he was like the hardcore, absolutely reliable member of the Communist Party. He invited uh, his two German colleagues uh, to his family apartment in Zagreb for a Christmas dinner in 1943. Hmm. Uh, his, mo- his mother and sister were uh, living in, still living in Zagreb, and he came just on 25th December, came with these two guys and, and had a dinner, like like family dinner. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and what's what's even more fascinating that the that the relatives of partisan envoys were usually not molested by the by the Germans mm. and not even by the Ustasha. That's very interesting. Mm. Uh, they probably I I I believe that the, that the German realized that these were that these were like fanatics and even if we like take his mother and family members hostage that that won't change anything like mm-hmm. he won't he won't do uh he will he won't betray his side or whatever mm-hmm. so there there is several examples really where these family members lived in zagreb so in that at the heart of the occupied occupied croatia mm-hmm. uh, throughout the war without everyone's being like molested or uh interrogated by the police or whatever that was like uh, there was like a mutual understanding that that wouldn't happen, mm-hmm. and some who were not sh- who were not sure about the uh, about having a mere gentleman's agreement would actually procure um, procure a letter of guarantee from the from the German general in Zagreb, mm-hmm. which stated that these people stood under German protection and so on. But that was that was mostly done out of fear for the Ustasha. Who often sabotaged uh, these these talks? Germans themselves, as Gilas, the famous dissident, said himself, uh, they treated them very correctly hmm. while they were in Zagreb. Hmm. So, apart from filling the historical record, um, what else do you hope the book will do for readers? I hope that it will it will draw their attention to this. To this uh, largely forgotten, largely forgotten theater of war, uh, which was Yugoslavia from 1941 to 1945. One of the reasons I wrote it in English, I studied in, in Austria, so I could have done it in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I decided to do it in English because uh, 
I felt that the that that the that this gap this the gap about in, in knowledge about what happened during the war here is like is, is really big, and like I I believe it's roughly treated so to say, uh, although as I said it's so complex uh, that it's that it's also so incredibly interesting this war it was so like had so many levels had so many uh, so many issues at, at hand um, the ideological war against uh, Germany uh, British British partisan relations so everything was there and apart from some aspects like like the um, British Chetnik relations or something like that uh, it's it's really uh, didn't get the attention that it deserved, and I believe it's 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 fine. It's also like as I said, as you can probably can gather uh, from the anecdotes I told you, it was it, it's really uh, it's it's really uh, fun to read. I mean, I, I tried to make it that way mm-hmm. by including uh, as many anecdotes that, that I that I could, but. Um, I believe, as I said, that it's, although, of course, it's maybe me, I'm, I'm of course, biased. <laughs> but I think, you yeah, know, no, really, I, I think that, that, that the average reader could find, uh, could find it, the, the, the whole topic, interesting and fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, uh, things he could never imagine that had happened in, in the heart of occupied Europe. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, they did. It's crazy, but it did. It seems the book has, I, I assume it has a, a fair amount of human element to it. Like you say, these anecdotes about individual persons. I tried to make make it like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to. I have. I have to tell you, like that when I was uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, I obtained a copy of Cornelius Ryan, um, uh, The Longest Day, mm-hmm. uh, and I was fascinated by the way he rec- recreated these events based on 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 human stories. And uh, I, I really tried to, to, to do a similar thing. Uh, so also in order to make it more readable, because if you only put in facts and figures and this exchange happened here, this exchange happened there, you can just compile a chronology and put it on internet and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you really, uh, this, this, this human side needs to be, needs to be told and it needs to be told in English I believe because as I said you have a fair amount of um, uh, books on political history of the war on Chetnik British relations partisan British relations but these are all based and as they should be on official correspondence and on documents and really the the, the, the human dimension of the war is some, somehow hidden mm-hmm. Okay. And I tried to at least um, set it straight uh, as as far as I could, of course, and as far as it was relevant to the to the main topic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I include I included every every single story that I could like, and there and are and there are quite some some of these stories. If if you mentioned the drink, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is actually there was actually an event. Uh, there was actually an exchange in which the envoys did precisely that. Although they didn't know each other, that was the first time they meet. Hmm. They they went into the tavern and had a glass of beer. Hmm. And there was yeah, 
because they were they were most of the most of the people on both sides were were curious about the enemy. They were they weren't hostile for the most part. They were just curious to see what a real live enemy looked like. Yeah, how he thought, how he how, what was on his mind, and so they just sat in the tavern and uh, had a, had a glass of beer and had a conversation and then parted away. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, that's that's like August 1943. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, only only several days ago uh, the partisans in, in, in that same area like wiped out the company of, of soldiers, hmm. capturing sixty of them and killing thirty. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> and like two or three or I don't know, maybe a week later. Yeah, these guys are having beer. Interesting. Yeah, that is. Those are interesting stories. Yeah, and it's full of them. So, did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? Oh, uh, so I finished. So I finished it like um, without major problems. Mm-hmm. But the publishing publishing was a tricky was a tricky part. Mm-hmm. And you probably know it. Huh? <laughs> you wouldn't ask that question oh, if you didn't. I I always uh, ask this actually. No, no, I know, I know. I'm just yeah. kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm referring basically to this, I don't know, it's a perennial problem of all historians, at least in recent times. Hmm. Uh, the, every, everyone I talked to had these massive problems about about book publishing, especially if it's Second World War. Hmm. Like, uh, yeah, uh, so I, I prepared the proposal and I believe I contacted at least a dozen publishing houses. And most of them refused it on grounds that it didn't fit uh, in their in their program. Hmm. These were mostly uh, these were mostly university university press houses, publishing houses. Hmm. And then um, I had a conversation with uh, Robert von Meyer, who's a chief editor in chief of Global War Studies, so peer-reviewed World War II journal, hmm. um, where I published two articles already. And then he expressed his intention and wish to uh, to see this book published. Uh, and then it took uh, some time uh, until uh, he he made an arrangement with the Uni- University Press of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And then it's the only thing that remained was to go through the manuscript, I believe, five or six times. I don't mm-hmm. know, like. <laughs> With three pairs of eyes, there was Robert, there was his wife Sharon, and there was me, mm-hmm. and we were like we were on Skype day and night, going through the going through the manuscript. Oh. And if you if you look at it now, you'll probably find typos, and so it's like never ending story. <laughs> but it got done. Yeah, yeah, finally. Um, what's your current or future writing project? I'm currently working on a on a single volume single volume military history of the war, so single of the Second World War in Yugoslavia. I mean, okay. So just don't. Uh, I was referring to Second World War in general. Hmm. So um, and that's basically that'll be basically uh, the military history of the partisan movement. Okay. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it also for this. For, well, for this, basically for the same reason, I, I did this book to to plug this 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 huge gap in 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 
English-speaking um, academic world or publishing world, mm -hmm. uh, where there's there's literally there's literally um, no similar title, I believe, in existence. Okay. I believe that that Yugoslavs maybe like translated uh, translated their official history in the late 70s mm -hmm. and published it in English, but. That's, I believe, the only such only such book in existence. And of course, being written mid seventies, it of course, it's of course written according to certain rules. And what I'm what I'm hoping to give to 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 do here is to give a, a, a modern, unbiased view of the of the partisan uh, movement and their and their military e efficiency. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it will hopefully it will hopefully be out next year. So watch out. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> um, so where can people find you on the web? Do you have a web page, social media, anything like that? Yes, I have. I have active uh, active profiles on research researchgate.net mm -hmm. and academia edu. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to point out that the. Uh, a book contains only uh, select uh, bibliography mm -hmm. uh, because a full bibliography would have taken too many pages. So we decided on a on a selective bibliography, mm -hmm. and I plan I plan on uploading the full uh, bibliography on my on on my profiles on these two so academic networks. Mm -hmm. So if anyone is interested, that's that would be good to know. Okay. And I'll spell your name for anyone who searches for you. It's first name G-A-J and last name T-R-I-F-K-O-V-I-C with the little um, mark yes, on Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's, that's perfect. Okay. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Oh, nothing except that I wish to thank you for having me. It was a it was truly honor and it was really enjoyable for me. Okay, good. Me too. I Yes, <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read... Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.